I am to be back in the studio, making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Whittington. And uh, here we are, week four of our decade by decade extravaganza, ultimately leading to our hundredth episode. We've gone from within our gates to All Quiet on the Western Front, to Pinocchio, and now we've we've made it to our our uh, like midway run where we will be doing a, a bit of a double dip on Billy Wilder. Uh, but before we get to talking about the first of those films, and that would be 1950s uh, Sunset Boulevard, uh, you know we'll talk some talk some shop, talk talk a bit of the movie movie stuff. Um, so. A peek, as to quote my friend here, a peek behind the curtains. We we record ahead of time, and we have a couple of episodes in the in the bank, if you will. But we took um, a week off. Uh, uh, that was m- uh, partly for me because my my anniversary was this last weekend, and so in the doing so, we've ha- I I've had a little more time, and I feel like I've watched a, a bunch of stuff. Um, but the one thing that I, I I've I watched that was has been on my radar for a while is this documentary called The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. Do you know do you know of this this movie? I have not, but that is one hell of a title. That's like a yeah. Werner Herzog title right there. Yeah, so um the the documentarian who made this his name is Kazuo Hara. Um and uh so again a little shout out to uh um this YouTube channel called Cinefix. They did this one maybe about a year ago, maybe not a little bit longer called, or they did the, the top 10 documentaries of all time. And there were a few on there that you, you probably have heard of and a whole bunch that I hadn't. And this was one of them. Um, so it sounded kind of insane. And then I watched it and it, it is this, this crazy movie. Um, so the, the documentary follows this guy. Uh, his name is Kenzo Okuzaki. 
he is, uh, or in the in the film, because this is this was made in '87, uh, but and I think it was like shot over 1980, 81. So it was a process putting the whole thing together. Anyway, though, he's uh, he was a veteran of the Second World War, and he was uh, he was stationed. Uh, he was he's Japanese, and he was stationed in New Guinea. And basically, the movie is following him trying to find out the truth about why two of his fellow soldiers were executed um, because they were executed after the war was over. And so any order given saying that these guys should have been executed should not have been followed, but it, but it was. And like this guy, I think he was, he, he killed somebody. He spent time in jail. He famously like, like did a slingshot at the emperor, like fucking hate, hated emperor Hirohito. And like, like this guy is bananas. Like, he basically like will he he corners people at home, doesn't tell them that he's coming, and just starts going like, so why'd you kill these guys? Why did you do it? Why'd you do it? He like beats up two people who aren't who don't talk to him. He corners one guy in his office and basically makes him cry. Like it is not uh, like the the ethical boundaries of of this movie are really kind of crazy. And then like, and I don't I don't want to give like too much away because. I, I really this is not my recommend, but I, I really do recommend this movie. Um, you find out that there might have been another reason why these two guys were shot and there's this whole oh man, this whole kind of really bleak period during the war for Japanese soldiers over there and what they had to do to survive. Um, it's it's kind of I, like I didn't see it coming and this and the guy who we follow is just like he he, straight up doesn't give a fuck about anything and it people people saying they don't know or people saying they have company or people being at work doesn't stop him from asking the questions that he wants to ask and it is it's about two hours long so it's not too daunting but like it's just it it, I, i don't know man this uh this this movie was like bananas in a great way. Like it kept me kept me very intrigued from from start to finish. That sounds like a really unique viewing experience. I don't think I've ever heard of anything like that. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I I always I, I like Cinefix because whenever they do their lists, they try to. I think they really they actually try to get people to watch stuff that they may not have heard of. Like at one point they did the like the top five horror films of all time, but they did it in like an alternate universe where like The Exorcist and Silence of the Lambs and Psycho like those didn't exist. And like they basically had like a, a top five movies like if those movies didn't exist, like what would fill in for them? And that was how I heard about uh, actually for the first time. That's how I heard about Peeping Tom. Um, which was an episode that we did a couple weeks back. And ah, there's a few more I can't think of, but like, I was like, Oh yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard of these. So that's, and it was for me, it's, it's a great, like I watched those to like make a list of like, Oh, I should probably check these out. So, um, anyways, yeah. The emperor's naked army marches on is bananas, but I, I oh, definitely that's great, recommend man. it. That, that's all. That's all about like what we're doing here, trying to expand the horizons a little bit. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I came into this episode not thinking that I had as much preamble as in the last couple of weeks, but then I, I, something just occurred to me. I remembered something that was, it was a really special experience that I got to have because I love, I love movies that I'm really familiar with that I get to share with 
other people. And it's like, you know, you get to have that first viewing experience again through somebody else's eyes, which is always great. Like uh, our friends, Josh and Amy, you know, you know, Josh, Mm -hmm. uh, they had never seen Die Hard. So showing them the first Die Hard around Christmas, this past Christmas was fucking great. Loved it. Because I know that movie like the back of my hand, but getting to relive those sort of first reactions. Anyway, sticking in the Die Hard vein, Liz and I were trolling through our massive digital collection for something to watch uh, last Saturday night. And she stops at Die Hard with a Vengeance and she's like, oh, let's put this on. I was like, yeah, let's do it. I was like, and, you know, we're 30 minutes into the movie. Again, another movie I know like the back of my hand. I'm cracking jokes. I'm like doing lines. I'm like, you know, I'm doing a bit the whole fucking movie. And then we, we pause so we can get, you know, refill our drinks or do whatever it is we're doing. Yeah. And she goes, I can't believe how good this is. I can't believe I'd never seen this one. And I literally dropped a bollock. <laughs> I was like, you fucking what now? And she's like, yeah, no, I've never seen Die Hard with a Vengeance. And I went, hang on. So you're telling me you've seen one, two, four and five, but not three. And she went, no, I've never seen it. And then I, oh. then I just shut, then I just shut the fuck up. Cause I was like. No, no, no. I want you to, like, I, I'm sorry that I ruined the first half hour. Like, I want you to experience this, you know what I mean? And, and not have somebody, you know, chirping in your ear the whole fucking movie, cracking wise. And it was so great to, to I think I've, I've talked about it in recent weeks and maybe not on mic, but definitely off mic with you when I did my revisited uh, Ransom and Air Force One. I did that 90s double feature and I was yeah. just, man, movies were just fucking better in the 90s than... <laughs> Uh, they they just were it's just a fucking fact um and we were watching die hard with a vengeance and the whole scene where he like takes that shortcut they've got to do 90 blocks in like 30 minutes and so he cuts through central park and liz is like jesus christ how did they do this i'm like they they drove through central park yeah (laughs) like you just shit that you literally just can't do anymore you know i I hate to phrase it like this it's such a shame but in a post 9-11 world these these are just movies you, you just fucking can't make them anymore. And so they're, they're, they're kind of like gems, you know, you may have shat on them back in the day and go, oh, it's just cheesy action. It's just this, it's just that, but we'll never have that type of filmmaking again. I don't, I don't think anyway, I, I don't foresee us making films like that anymore. Well, yeah, so I feel was, like it's, it's taken different forms. Like the, you know, like John McClane isn't quite the anti-hero, but like our heroes are no longer like an everyday guy. And you can even see that by just the way that the, the Die Hard franchise fell apart. Like, you know, in Live Free or Die Hard, he's all of a sudden a goddamn superhero. And and like what's great about the first three, I mean, the second one, you know, whatever. But like in the first three, he really is just like Joe Blow nobody. He's a, he's a New York cop. That's it. Like not, nothing extra special. He's just a dude who has been put into some precarious circumstances and he's doing his best to get by. Um, oh, dude, I I have... So so I saw Die Hard with a Vengeance before Die Hard because of when it came out, I must have been like, what, nine, nine-ish? And then like, like maybe about 10, it was on TV. And I, 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 I had heard of Die Hard, but you're 10. I, I don't have the history yet. I have no idea. And so... Um, I saw Die Hard with a Vengeance before Die Hard. And so, like, I get that Die Hard is a better movie, and I know what it did for the action genre. But I, like, like gun to my head, I, I, I'd put on Die Hard with a Vengeance before Die Hard. I, I have a confession to make. So would I. Hey! 
and I will I will have no shit talking of Die Hard Two. We all know it's a carbon coffee. It's the Hangover Two of its era. But again, it's you just you couldn't you you can't make that movie now. Yeah, no, I I I agree. There, there's something there's something kind of special about it, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we just I've I've been watching. I don't know. I've been striking out lately. I put Guns Akimbo on the other night. Don't know what I was expecting. That was fucking garbage. I was disinterested 10 minutes in but i'm like fuck it i started it i'll see it through wish i hadn't see it, it's funny like this this last uh like week and a half or so it's been definitely like a kind of like an every other night like we've definitely traded off movies that we that we've been watching like uh in the last couple of weeks we watched uh big trouble in little china and the talented mr ripley those are both my picks melissa had never seen them and then we went on a, a Conjuring, Conjuring Two, which I love the Conjuring. Actually, I love the first one. And then we and then we watched all the Annabelle movies just because, like, well, fuck it, why not? Who cares? We, we we watched the the second and third Annabelle movies in one night. So like, cool, whatever. Just crank it through horror movies. The good scares. Not you know, I don't got to worry too much about overthinking, but they're they're fun in their own way. Um, so yeah, how underwhelmed? A- how underwhelmed was Melissa by Big Trouble? Um. I don't think underwhelmed was would be the correct word. I think I think baffled and 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 mystified probably would yeah, better it explain. Is, it is genuinely baffling. Like I understand the nostalgia around it, but it, like if it, I, it's one of those movies. It's it's another one like Airplane or Caddyshack or any kind of those like late seventies, early eighties movies. I wish I had seen them when they had come out because I think I think a lot of what they're doing is is lost on younger generations or people that didn't get to see them at the time you know yeah i i I, that was the second time i'd seen it and the first time i watched it i i was convinced because i only all all i knew about it really was that it was a carpenter film and so which is not the right way to go in because that that in itself is kind of misleading because other than like some of the special effects um it is not a john carpenter film not the way that not the way that i associate his name to movies um but the second time I knew what I was kind of in for. So I was like, oh, okay. This, it was just kind of campy fun, you know, whatever. I don't know, man. The second time, because I've seen it twice as well. The second time was more exhausting than the first. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a great movie. I think it's a fun I, and I've, movie. I, and I've got a really good friend. Uh, to, I don't know if Todd listens to the show, but it's like his favorite movie of all time. So if he ever hears this, uh, he and I are going to... I'm sure he's going to have a very long conversation with me. You're going to come to blows? Oh, I don't know about coming to blows, but I'll, I'll get a stern talking to, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, the, only other, the only other thing I would mention in this little bit of preamble that I got to... I revisited a little film called Five Minutes of Heaven. Uh, with Liam Neeson and uh, God, I'm blanking on his name. James Nesbitt, uh, okay. English, uh, I, I, Irish actor. Um, it's just about the Northern Ireland. And I did this on a double feature with Hunger. Honestly, I should have started with Hunger and then gone to this because you've seen Hunger. You know I how have. fucking yeah, that's that's some tough shit. I was yeah. I, I don't know. I was I was in a I was in an IRA the troubles sort of mood, I guess, and I back to back these, but 5 minutes of heaven is just essentially about this guy who's being asked to meet the man who killed his brother. You know, it was Northern Ireland 1973. Liam Neeson plays an an Ulster uh member of the Ulster Voluntary Force and then, you know, this this guy that he killed was was you know catholic protestant kind of thing 
and you know there's lots of flashbacks to the incident and you know Liam Neeson having reckoned with what he did and having served time with it and now becoming something of a public speaker talking about trying to get these kids out of this you know mob and clan mentality you know stop this stuff before it starts and Nesbitt has ulterior motives yeah he's gonna he's gonna do this interview but you know he's got a knife with him and all he wants is his five minutes of heaven of dealing with this situation because the the blame sort of fell at his feet his mother completely turned on him and was like it you know why didn't you stop you were there why didn't you stop but he's like a nine-year-old kid what's he gonna do you know very very tough very tough very emotionally wrenching little revenge flick and I think I think you'll really like it. I think I think you'll I think you'll appreciate, especially the first half of the film, which is very much a chamber piece, and then halfway through it switches gears a little bit. I think you'll really appreciate it. Cool, sounds good. Yeah, I know. Uh, I don't know when, but I I definitely want to Calvary. I know which we we talked about on our three billboards episode is high up there. I really do want to want to check that out. You're um, you're gonna. I'll be very very surprised if you don't like that. That's that's. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited to watch it. Um, so, so I wanna, let's get I wanna, into recommends yeah, then. Yeah, I want to get into my recommends because I, I mentioned earlier that we took the week off um, from recording uh, just so that I could sort of have a, you know, a somewhat quarantined staycation for my my anniversary. Um, and in doing so, uh, my wife and I revisited uh, what have collectively become our favorite movies. Like I know what my favorite movie is. I know what her favorite movie is. But we have a favorite movie. And so uh, we decided to uh, revisit um, a little trilogy uh, that Richard Linklater did. Uh, that would be the Before Sunset, Before Sunrise, and Before Midnight uh, trilogy. Um, also, a little callback to your recommend from last week with The Scanner Darkly. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. If, if you haven't seen these movies, y- you are really doing yourself a disservice every time I think about movies that aren't in the book that should be um this is pretty high up there um and and you could you could do the cop out thing that they did with toy story you could put them all in there as one um i i, I we're not i i'm excited to get to a link later episode so we can discuss maybe his films a little more at length because i don't think that he has the correct movies in the book at, at all um but if you don't know um uh, the 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 movies. Um, it's basically it's Ethan Hawke and and Julie Delpy who play um, this this couple. Uh, and 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 before um, and before sunrise, uh, they meet on a train, and they basically decide, hey, let's get off together and sort of spend the day. He's he's flying back to the U.S. She's going back to uh, France. They they stop in Prague, and um, they basically just chat and kind of fall in love and decide that six months later they're going to meet again. And re- rekindle their love, and then the next movie is nine years later, um, before uh, before sunset. And um, uh, obviously, nine years has passed. Um, uh, Ethan Hawke as Jesse has gotten married and has a son, but that marriage isn't going so well. And he's on a book tour, and he meets Julie Delpy. It's in Paris, last stop of the book tour. Um, he admits that he came back six months months later, but she didn't. And uh, they they sort of spend the time that he has before he has to catch a plane to go back home. You know, re reconnecting, and and they you can definitely see the seeds of something there. Uh, and then in before midnight, we jump again nine more years later. Um, we quickly get that um, uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy are now married. They have twins of their own. Um, 
but Ethan Hawke is definitely having some uh, some some uh, some issues with uh, his ex-wife. His he's basically putting his son back on a plane to go home. They're all vacationing in Greece, and uh, he he's missing you know the formative years of his son's life. He's going to be a freshman in, in high school, and he feels really bad about it. And um, and then that that film sort of is it, it's it's really interesting because these these films are all really different. You know, the first one is definitely about the seeds of love and of romance. It's a very romantic film. And then the second film is that is the sort of like, oh, man, we could have we could have been something we could have been together. And then, oh, look, we actually could. And then the the third one is it's I can't say that it's the best because they're all really good for different reasons. But the third one is the most adult. There's a very intense maybe is is the wrong word but for an argument in a hotel room that that was supposed to be like a lovely evening it's a really like true to life like any married couple watching that scene has had a moment like that where like a, a like nobody's like yelling but like a genuine honest like argument that turns into a fight uh kind of thing and it's just the way it's shot the way it's done um link later giving so much attention to the script. They're so dialogue heavy, which I'm, I'm such a big fan of the, the locations are all really unique going from Prague to Paris to, to somewhere in Greece. I'm not sure where they are. Um, I, I don't know, man, I cannot say enough about these movies. I think it's, I mean, boyhood was an accomplishment and I, I love that that was all in one film and I think it's really good, but I think I, I really hope that like that link later Although he'll probably be remembered for Dazed and Confused, I I hope it's these movies. I think they're fucking fantastic. Well, see, I've I've got the first one, and I'm getting the feeling I probably I, I I'm sounded like I should have picked up the the Criterion trilogy during the last Barnes and Noble sale. You're kind of really I, selling me on it. I bought that blind, having never seen them, and it is now probably one of my of my you know criterion collection one of my four or five favorite things that I'm I'm glad I I have because it's just I know that'll be something whether whether it's every year on our anniversary or every other year like I, that's going to be something I know for like the rest of time I will revisit you know periodically well that's awesome that's that's really special man I I I will confess what's holding me back is that I know how the first and second ones end so that's kind of that's kind of bumming me out a little bit. Like I I I haven't seen any of them, but I know they're married in the third one, I, and I'm sure there is much more to that. But that's just it's a little disheartening when you know where they're going. Yes, but I, what's I I think especially in the second one, it it's the it's the journey. Like it's because what's what's really interesting about uh, the second movie is that like he's only got a very limited amount of time before he has to catch a plane. So unlike the first one where they've got like oh it seems like you know half a day they've got like twelve hours like together and they and there's clear jumps in time as the night progresses into the early morning. The second one, like he gives a, he gives a talk he runs into her hey let's go to this cafe hey I gotta go home and it it feels more like it's all in real time and I, I think that there's a sense of urgency plus it's it's even though you you know what's going to happen you also have to deal with the 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 facts of the movie that he is married he has a kid and like and just how that's going to work itself out as they go through everything i i don't know man don't I, I of course i'm like don't let that deter you because they're fucking really good oh no they're definitely they're definitely on on a very high up on my radar 
and, so and maybe I should just the next the next Criterion sale. Maybe I should just take the plunge. I would I would strongly urge you to do it. All right. All so right. there you go. I, I and I and I cheated. I'm but I'm recommending the whole trilogy. That's that's my recommend. Oh, this you week. know I think that's okay. I think that's how a lot of people tend to look at them now that there is three of them. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of like the the three colors trilogy. You don't really talk about them individually. Yeah, but you know what's funny is you you could though because those movies are not. Have you seen Have you seen the three colors movies? I I have I have not, but I'm I'm just what I want to say is that I I very. I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about them individually. I any time that I've seen them referenced or read, you know, read about them in an article, it's always as the three. Yes, true. I the the, the only difference though is that those movies are not like I Red does a slight way of connecting all of them, but really they're they're all very different movies. Very different movies. Well, that's that's good to know. It isn't. I th- I think only now that I've said that, I think only one of them is in the book. No, I don't think uh, that they're they're not in there as a trilogy, right? No, they're not. But at least I think blue and red are in the book. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's what I I, I knew they weren't in there as a trilogy, but yeah, like yeah. cheating with fucking Toy Story. <laughs> we'll deal with <laughs> I that. Know. I know. Uh, okay, so there we go. There we go. That's me. That's me. Ian, what are you recommending this week? I have got a uh, little bit of a newer flick, but it is uh, kind of period relevant to what we're going to be talking about in a minute. Uh, this is uh, Stan and Ollie, which is now streaming on Stars. This stars uh, Steve Coogan and John C. Riley as uh, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. They were two uh, famous stars from a bygone era of Hollywood. We're talking the 20s, the 30s. You know, they came up in the shadow of guys like Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd and Charlie Chaplin and trying to create this this dynamic, uh, born out of uh, vaudeville sort of style of performing. So the film opens in 1937. They're at the height of their powers. Uh, Stan's contract is coming up. Uh, Ollie's isn't. And so there's a bit of a rift that happens between them. And then we cut to 16 or so years later, they are reunited. They are on a a music hall tour of Great Britain because that's where they they actually had a a massive fan base there. I remember seeing reruns of them on TV, especially around Christmas time. They would always throw on Chaplin and Keaton and and that older older sort of uh, generation of films. Um, so they're back together. They're on this tour trying to reclaim a little bit of their former glory. You know, Stan is still working hard writing and, and coming up with scripts and trying to get a new film off the ground. Whereas Ollie's health has deteriorated quite a bit. He is quite a large gentleman, uh, who has had multiple heart attacks and, uh, you know, you feel the whole movie that this rift is, you know, it's a basic sort of boilerplate biopic type story uh so you feel that this rift is coming and these two play so well off of each other it's another one of these films where i just found myself getting sucked in i wasn't watching john c Riley and and steve coogan i was watching stan and ollie as far as i was concerned i think it's absolutely beautifully shot um they were both actually nominated for awards Riley for a globe and and coogan for a bafta for it uh so i i don't want to I, I thought about it, but I don't want to bring up the whole actors winning awards for playing real people thing again. But I, I won't, I won't, you know, 
I won't delve back into that too much, but suffice to say that these guys really do inhabit these two men fantastically. And I, I, I really just had a whale of a time watching it got really lost in, in the performances in the story. I remember you talking about this movie like as it was coming out in the theaters and I'm was this the first time that you had watched it because you were yeah no it it took me a while to come around to it and then okay. it was on sale for like 10 bucks so I was like ah oh, fuck it I'll just take the dive I'll just blind buy it I I assume I'm gonna like it and and I did I was really charmed by it well that is that is lovely yeah I you know I hope I get to it soon at some point because I, I do like Coogan and Riley a lot I I, I think you're gonna like it well, there you go. There you go. So uh, the Before Trilogy and Stan and Ollie, those are our official recommends this week. Uh, but now we got to get down to it. We got to talk about the 70th anniversary of Sunset Boulevard, uh, uh, directed by the great Billy Wilder. It is written by him and uh, Charles Brackett, who also produced the film, and DM Marshman Jr. Um do we want to talk a great, about great little... great name by the way, DM Marshman? What, yeah, that I don't know what the DM is, but I I, I just like I like initials like that because it could be anything. Yeah. Um, do we want to do we want to do a little Billy Wilder deep dive now, or do we want to save that? Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about him, where he came from? He was born in uh, southern Poland, formerly part of uh, Austria Hungary, in uh, 1906. He got the nickname Billy from his mom. Um, starting out, he started as a journalist before he was a filmmaker, uh, after the family had moved to Vienna, and then uh, he eventually immigrated to Germany and, and became a tabloid writer there, started to get bored of that and living in Berlin, and uh, he turned his attention to uh, writing films. Um, he wrote his first solo screenplay in 1931 for a film called Emile and the Detectives, and then he made his directorial debut uh, just a few years later, in 1934, when he was living in Paris, the film was called Bad Seed, but he uh, had to leave before it was released because, you know, if you know your history, 1941, uh, Europe is not a great place to be if you're Jewish, uh, Nazis on the rise and such. Uh, he, uh, he ended up coming to Hollywood and found huge success uh, with his partnership with Charles Brackett in 1939. They wrote a film together called Nenochka, uh, which is where he received his first Oscar nomination. Indeed. Uh, so while we're talking Oscar nominations, this guy's list of accolades is just remarkable. Uh, it, it, it's so bananas. Got, it's it's huge. So he was nominated for a staggering 21 Academy Awards. 12 of those were for writing, 8 for directing, and 1 as a producer. Uh, and we'll talk about that next week on The Apartment because he made history with some of those wins. Uh, he won 6 of them. So total Oscars. Uh, he was also given a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1988. He was given an AFI Lifetime Achievement Award a couple of years before in 86. He got the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Big deal. Uh, he got seven WGAs, again, out of a staggering 16 nominations. He's got three DGAs, two PGAs, a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and the National Medal of Arts, which is given by Congress. Whew. That's, that's quite an impressive list. Indeed, and uh, I'm I I trying to do some quick math here. Hold on, give me a second. So I know we normally say this for later in the episode, but hey, Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? Yes, it was. Nineteen eighty nine. 
the only reason I bring up, uh, I wanted to bring that up, bring that up early, is because he has ten films that have been inducted into the National Film Registry. So that uh, has, that's got to be the record, I should think. I I I, I don't know that, but uh, it, that's a lot. That is a shitload of movies for a director. That's got to be damn close to the record if it's not the record. Yeah, yeah. I just bizarre. I just I wanted to bring that up too. Well, to, to finish off a little bit of biographical information about him, I found a little piece of trivia I thought was fascinating. Um, so, as I mentioned, he was Jewish. He fled the Nazis. Unfortunately, his mother, grandmother, and stepfather were not so lucky. And uh, one, the last film that he wanted to make was Schindler's List. He wanted to get the rights to that book and actually do that as a, as a tribute, as a memorial to the, the family that he had lost uh, during the Holocaust. Unfortunately, Steven Spielberg, as we know, beat him to the rights on that one uh he died in 2002 at the age of 95 of pneumonia his gravestone i don't know if you've seen a picture of it or know what it's inscribed with i, I have fucking it's fucking brilliant here lies billy wilder i'm a writer but then nobody's perfect of course mirroring that very famous line from the end of some like a hot fucking great tombstone uh Jack uh, Jack Lemon has a really great one as well that I happened to find while I was doing some biographical research because obviously as we'll talk about next week Jack Lemon and Billy Wilder uh, very close did a lot of films together they're definitely responsible for Jack Lemon's success and the very first pairing of Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau in Fortune Cookie in 1966 but Jack Lemon's gravestone just reads Jack Lemon in <laughs> it's, it's got to be the greatest gravestone ever. I like that. I like that. That that's great. Um, yeah, man, it was great to even just like go through his his filmography because he's. I mean, well, we can talk a little bit about the other films that he has, and these are just what's in the book. He um, so other films in the book that he has done um, are Double Indemnity uh, from 1944, fucking awesome movie. Um, the Lost Weekend from 1945, Ace in the Hole. 1951, Some Like It Hot from 1959, and next week's episode, The Apartment, uh, 1960. Um, that that is that is just a hell of a list. I mean, just I, and, even just the ones that are in the book. Hell exactly. Of a list. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, you know, talk about cast. This really is a very small cast, um, surrounded by basically four key performances so we have William Holden who plays Joe Gillis Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond Eric von Stroheim as Max von Meyerling uh, and Nancy Olsen as Betty Schaefer all four of those individuals nominated for Oscars uh, for leading and supporting respectively um, and then really I think the only other people to mention are just the the, the cameos of the people who played themselves um, yeah there's some great ones in there yeah, yeah. So around the um, the bridge table, we have uh, ah, Buster Keaton. So nice to see him again. Uh, we have Buster Keaton, Anna Q. Nielsen, and H. B. Warner. Those are all um, uh, people, other silent film stars at the time, and uh, they're all playing bridge with um, uh, uh, Norma at her house. And then the other two. Uh, is apparently, have- Buster Keaton was. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no. Uh, uh, Buster Keaton was a very well-respected bridge player. He would actually, people would actually pay him to come to their bridge games. Oh, well, there you go. Go. Hey, even, even after his heyday, he's still making, making some, some money. Um, and then we have Hedda Hopper also playing herself at the end. Um, and in a very pivotal scene and like probably the biggest cameo in the movie of Cecil B. DeMille himself, um, in a pretty important scene on the Paramount lot, which we'll, we'll 
talk about uh, later. Um, I think probably probably the most important scene for her character and the and the sort of world that she inhabits. Did you uh, yeah. see Did you see what they paid Cecil B. DeMille to be in the film? So I forget the dollar amount. Can you help me out with that? It was it was ten grand. Uh, see what I read. Oh, see I read something a little bit a bit more. I heard that his his for his fee he wanted ten grand and a Cadillac. Right. Yeah, so 10 and, grand at the Cadillac, but then when they had to do an insert, he wanted another 10 grand for the close-up, yeah, which is yeah. uh, just Jesus. the Cadillac detail alone is great, but then that little just that little bit of icing on the top there where he's like, "Oh wait, you need you need another shit. No, that's going to be another 10 grand." Like, "Fuck you." Oh, my, <laughs> Pay me. My god. My <laughs> god. Well, he they were shooting uh they were shooting Samson and Delilah. Yep. Very famous film starring the great German film actress and and inventor and and actually partially one of the, the the people who's responsible for giving us the internet as uh and and wi-fi uh in particular hetty lamar but uh she doesn't appear in sunset boulevard because demille apparently demanded that if they were to have any any close-ups or any scenes with hetty lamar they had to pay her 25 yeah. grand which i love that i love that he would take care of his star like that that's fantastic oh sure yeah yeah, yeah. no he he i you know a shrewd businessman beyond a filmmaker and it's somebody who'd been in the business for a long time. So he, he fucking knew what he was doing. Um, I've got a, I've got a deep respect for him, but I do have another, I guess this will be my third confession on this episode is that uh, I've never seen a Cecil B. DeMille film. Oh, I, I have not either. I, I'm, oh, I'm okay. sure. Oh, whew. I don't, I'm I don't feel sh- so bad then. I'm sure the first one will be uh 10 commandments. It, I, I, I have it. It'll be something I watch at some point. So there, there we have it. Um, accolades. I'm intentionally going to skip over the Oscars for a second. So don't worry. We're coming back to it. Um, other than that, uh, at the Golden Globes, it won uh, Best Picture Drama, Actress, Director, and Score. Uh, lost Supporting Actor, Screenplay, and Cinematography. By the way, did you know that there was a point in time where the Golden Globes gave out Best Cinematography? Because I didn't know that. Yeah. Apparently they did. That's amazing. Um uh, uh, sorry, that's I don't know why I'm thinking about that. Uh, Billy Wilder got one of his DGA noms for this. Uh, the National Board Review said this was the best film of the year and also gave Gloria Swanson Best Actress. We already talked about the wonderful fact that this movie is in the National Film Registry. It won a, WG, a WGA award for Best American Drama. Uh, the first time that the AFI did the top 100 films of all time, it was number 12. It moved down a couple of spots to 16 when they redid the list. Uh, okay, so Ian, one thing that I was able to do over this extended break in recording is watch all five nominees for Best Picture in 1950. Let's do it, man. And uh, do you have a ranking? I do. I let's do it. Do because you know we love lists and we also love I, ranking things. I love list. And I I love ranking movies, especially if they're Best Picture nominees. So, um. Uh, I will go from least favorite to favorite. Um, and, and, and like, here's the thing. Four of these movies I would watch again. Uh, the fifth one uh, is a shit show. And that would be King Solomon's Minds. Um, this is sort of uh, fabled. Uh, it's about Alan Quartermain, um, Hunter in the Jungle, uh, Explorer. Story is, is sort of uh, this woman her husband came down trying to find King Solomon's mines. He never came back. And so they're trying to pay him to lead him through the dark territory. Um, there's a big thing at the beginning of the movie where 
they 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 pay respects and say thank you to the to the republics of these certain countries in Africa because um, it's clear that maybe nothing's been shot there before and they're definitely all natives to the land who they got kind of to be in the movie but this movie is more obsessed with showing the landscape and and animals who live around there than actually uh, developing characters or relationships or a story. Um, it's it's the, also the only colored picture nominated. Every other film nominated that year was was black and white. Um, not a good movie. Just just not a good movie. It did win best editing that year, which is one of the losses that Sunset Boulevard, Boulevard had. Um, my uh, number four would be uh, Father of the Bride, which I of course didn't realize was uh, a, a movie that had spawned the Steve Martin remake in the nineties. Um, it was so funny. Melissa was getting her hair done and, uh, Stella and I, I told her, I go, Hey Stella, I kind of want to watch an old movie and it's black and white. And I don't know if you want to watch it, but she goes, well, can we have popcorn? I was like, uh, yeah, well, sure. So then we had, we had a little, it was great to have a father daughter date night watching father of the bride, which was just kind of funny. Um, very sweet movie. I, I'm movies like this don't really get nominated for best picture. Like a sweet kind of endearing comedy. Spencer Tracy is great, and I I don't know. It's probably not Elizabeth Taylor's first performance, but she's in it. Um, she's the the bride. Um, just a fun movie to watch. Really kind of you know ridiculous moments, but also just kind of very funny, over the top wedding shenanigans. Um, how's how's her performance? Is it is she? Because she had a tendency to kind of go over the top, especially there at the end. But is she a little more reined in? Yeah, definitely so. And and you know, she's also she's really young. I mean, I think her character must be in her, like twenty or twenty one, and just I would imagine she's around that age. And she's not asked to do all that much. I mean, I mean, I'm not I'm not taking anything away from what she does in the movie because I think she's good. But like, she just gets to basically get married and be pretty. I mean, that's pretty much what she gets. To. She has one kind of emotional scene with her dad, which is nice um, towards the end. Um, but it's a good movie. It's a sweet movie, and I'm sure I will I will watch it again at some point. Um, number three is Born Yesterday, which uh, I, I'll, I'll I'd probably bring up anyway because uh, famously, the, and I, I this was my note after I watched the movie because I I was probably most interested in watching this because I read that Judy Holiday won Best Actress this year, not just over Gloria Swanson, but also uh, over Betty Davis for All About Eve. And so I was like, well, this this is interesting. So I watched the movie, and it is not a bad performance, but I would equate this to the year that Adrian Brody won Best Actor over uh, Jack Nicholson and Daniel Day-Lewis, where, like, that entire award season, like, Jack Nicholson was winning all the comedy stuff, and, and Daniel Day-Lewis was winning all the drama stuff, and, like, occasionally they'd trade off, like, somebody won the SAG, and somebody won, like, the BAFTA, and it was like, oh, who, who's gonna win? And then all of a sudden, fucking Adrian Brody wins Best Actor that year, and again, not that he wasn't good, but I don't think anybody saw that coming. This is what that feels like. Um, like, they couldn't quite figure out who was gonna win, and so all of a sudden, Judy Holiday wins Best Actress. Yeah, because I think I think Betty Davis was the front runner from most of the things that I've read, and it's yeah, it's I think, it's nice to know that you know some things don't change, and the Academy really needs to get their shit together and start figuring some things out. But that's, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but it's a fun movie. Uh, Judy Holiday reminds me a lot of the actress in Singing in the Rain, who um, I, and I forget that actress's name, but she's the one who's the star with Gene Kelly in all the movies, who has that like I can't stand them. She's like a she's like a former chorus girl who who isn't very smart and her like tough guy boyfriend wants her to get a little smarter because he's got to meet all these congressmen. By the way, great year for William Holden, who was also in Born Yesterday, has a pretty big role in that. Um, 
And then between like, this is really tough, dude, really tough because I think my number two is sunset Boulevard. Um, and I think all about Eve only edges it out a little bit for two reasons. One, it's more about the theater, which of course is just like so near and dear to my heart. And the, I wouldn't say that there's a twist in All About Eve, but the way that um, everything kind of unfolds as we get towards the end of it is I didn't necessarily see coming. It's ruthless. It's I know like I kept reading about how how people thought that Sunset Boulevard was kind of ruthless and like how could you make a movie about Hollywood? And we'll definitely talk about Louis B. Mayer's reaction to the movie because I think that's fucking hilarious. Um, but like this is like there was there's a ruthlessness to all about Eve that is just really interesting. And I, and I think it's so such a weird coincidence that all about Eve and sunset Boulevard, both industry movies, even though one's film and one stage, um, one about a, like a, basically like a fading star, like somebody who's on their way out in sunset Boulevard and, 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 and a, like an up and comer, uh, in all about Eve. I, yeah, yeah. Um, and and all about Eve is in the book. It's the only one of the uh, it's the only movie from this list that's in the book. So I I, I hasten to say too much about it now. Um, but it really you know I I owned four of these movies, uh, which I was surprised to find out because I wasn't quite sure that I did. Um, so I was like, and oh, fuck. and this was all all first time watches, yeah. Indeed, yes. Well, that's interesting. I'm definitely very excited for for all about Eve now. Yeah, it's 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 good. It's good. Um. So While we're talking oh, a little yes, bit of please. accolades, we should also yes. mention that uh, the AFI it was number it's number sixteen now. Uh, it's also number sixteen on their top one hundred scores of all time, and it has not one but two quotes in the top one hundred quotes of all time. At number twenty four, I am big. It's the pictures that got small, and at number seven, the line that everybody doesn't misquote, but they say it in the wrong order. The quote is actually, "All right, Mr. Demille, I'm ready for my close up." I think a lot of people say I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. They do. They do. One of those people is my mother-in-law who uh, I don't know if she listens to the show at all, but I would I, I've been with my wife uh not married but together for almost like 17 years, and so I would say for like 16 and a half years she has been telling me to watch this movie and I just haven't done it. And so when it happened to work, I was like, "Oh my god, I can actually now speak to her about this movie that she's been telling me to watch for a decade and a half." So there we go. Well, uh, like like Melissa with West Side Story, I kind of hope that uh, your mother-in-law doesn't hear this episode because I'm gonna have some uh, I'm gonna have some <laughs> not nice things to say here in a minute. Oh, okay, all right. Well, let, let's let's stampede through some of this other stuff really quick. Um, I have this movie being ranked number sixty-five on the IMDb top two fifty. Did uh, you see has... the absolute bullshit that it is between? Uh, I did not. At number 64, Avengers Infinity War. Okay, At number 66, stupid. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Which okay. was, a fun, was a fun movie, don't get me wrong, but can we wait maybe 10 years to see if these movies have any kind of fucking longevity? Infinity War is just, that's just a bunch of, I, I, I'll tone it down a bit. That's a bit of hogwash. That's hogwash and poppycock. Um, I think the words you're looking for are horseshit. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I, I do really, really like into the spider verse, but yeah, it, I, I agree. It, it's hard to like, how do you, how do you put this movie next to that? I, whatever. It doesn't fucking matter. Um, uh, um, 
Uh, it has a uh, critical score on Rotten Tomatoes of 98% with an audience score of 95%. Um, I did get the original New York Times review. Unfortunately, I didn't get the writer. I want to guess it was Bosley Crowther, but I don't know. Oh, it is Bosley Crowther. Okay. Um, so you just, just, you instinctually went there. You're, yeah, you're just, yeah. We've now we've now got the 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 Bosley radar going on where we're yeah. actively searching for him. Oh, of course. Um, so I'll do. I I just took a little bit from it. Um, Sunset Boulevard is by no means a rounded story of Hollywood past or present, but it is such a clever compound of truth and legend and so richly redolent of the past, yet so contemporaneous, that it seemingly speaks with great authority. Sunset Boulevard is that rare blend of pungent writing, expert acting, masterly direction, and unobtrusively artistic photography which quickly casts a spell over an audience and holds it enthralled to a shattering climax. I don't know if that's how Crowther spoke, but that's what we're gonna go with. I, you know, and I think I might just change it every time. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'll make him. Maybe I'll make him British at one point, and I'll do like a really bad RP or something. Well, I, I, uh, I just looked into the future. I know how this podcast ends. This podcast ends with you and I writing a Bosley Crowther biopic, and me directing oh. you in it as Bosley Crowther. Fuck! I can't. I can't wait and it's not i mean like a biopic because he's a real person but like we're gonna just make shit up right oh absolutely oh, i love it that's great are, are that's we gonna great. we're gonna make uh an unauthorized biography of sorts <laughs> where we're going to we're gonna show you bosley crowther as we would have wanted him to be based on his <laughs> reviews oh shit and All then right. pull well, the Cohen brothers trick at the beginning saying based on a true story. Oh yeah, great. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um so let's uh let's just quickly uh run through what happens in this movie. Um we we I, I won't we open up on a murder uh and I don't think we are particularly supposed to know maybe right away who it is, but we'll, we'll kind of skip past that for now. So basically, we uh, we meet Joe Gillis. He is a struggling screenwriter and clearly uh, not good with his money as uh, uh, some, some collectors are coming to get his car back. As he is trying to drive around and get money from people, they spot him. He uh, blows a flat tire and has to pull into a driveway, which happens to be the driveway of one Norma Desmond, um, a, a uh, silent film star who has now basically been living in a uh, rundown mansion off of the the millions of dollars that she has earned in her heyday. Um, at first, she believes he's uh, somebody coming to bury a monkey, which never comes back into play. And I don't know how that doesn't happen. Uh, but anyways, um, she takes a liking to him. She mentions that she's been writing a movie. He's a screenwriter, so he he'll take a look at it, and he ends up through through not his own doing, um, living with her, um, and they form an interesting relationship. Um, she's convinced that she is going to make her big break. Paramount is calling her, and we'll discuss for what reasons later. Um, and uh, but throughout all of this, um, uh, Joe has met uh, Betty, who was a reader at Paramount. And um, she takes a liking to one of his scripts and they start writing together and she's she's engaged to like his his buddy, but like she's falling for him. And I think he likes her, but he has this weird connection now with Norma. Um, And because of some of the information that we get from Max, who is uh, Gloria's butler and spoiler alert, her first husband, um, he might feel obligated to stay or maybe it's more than that. Um, Unfortunately, by the end of the movie, um, uh, Joe does not decide to go with Betty, even though she wants it. And yet Joe decides to leave. And in his leaving, Norma 
kills Joe. He falls in the pool, and then we get that that last part of the movie, uh, very streetcar named Desire esque in a way where she is uh, not quite in the right mental headspace. Uh, believes that she is filming a scene for Mr. Demille as she descends down the stairs, and our picture crossfades to end credits. That was an excellent synopsis, sir. Thank you. Well, I did just watch it this morning, so it is fresh in my mind. That That is fresh as hell. <laughs> right off the bat, right off the bat, I gotta say, I'm glad you mentioned Streetcar Named Desire, because that brings me to one of my first points, is there? there's a lot of information out there about who was going to be cast in this film, who was written with in mind, who dropped out, this and that and the other. This is, I'm not asking, though I do want your opinion, because I usually pose these sorts of statements as questions, but I'm just going to state this as fact, because it fucking is. This is a better movie with Marlon Brando in it. Man. Especially you know, that at, at that age. Don't wipe your mind clear of Island of Dr. Moreau and no, his no, bad no. behavior. No, I know. I know. I mean, Streetcar and Desire is, I think, the next year. Uh, or the film. The film version of it. Um and what on the waterfronts fifty four? So no, I we're in his heyday. I I totally get that. Um. Oh man, I don't want to just blanketly. I don't want to just say that I I agree. I I'm because I'm sure it. I'm sure it could be. But there's something about, um, like William Holden. He he has an interesting screen presence and it's, but it's not overpowering. It's like, I wonder how much Gloria Swanson gets to shine if Brando is in it with her, because it's not Joe's story, even though he's narrating it, right? This is, this is Norma's story, or at least, I mean, it's, it's both of their stories, I guess. But like, I, I think the more interesting storyline in this is, is Norma's. And I think I hundred percent agree. We're yeah, and, we're all the way you, right there. If you put Brando in there, doing his really naturalistic thing, I don't know, man. You, I mean, obviously, I, mean, I know, I know, Gloria didn't win the Oscar, and I know it's not about winning Oscars, but I, I just wonder if, if the lasting memory of this movie isn't Gloria Swanson if Brando's in it. And I don't know. I mean, that's a great, that's a great what if. I I just my problem, my my major problem. I mean, I I've got some plot issues we'll, we'll deal with uh, later on. But William Holden, I don't give a fuck about him. He is so flat and kind of. I just I don't. I oh man, I hate using this word about performances. It's it feels dirty because I I respect <laughs> acting so much. Is he was fucking boring. That's so funny. I didn't, I didn't really feel that way, because and again, I think, in in a very real way, to quote my good friend Ian Woodington, I think he has the thankless role in this movie. Well, it's it's written to be that way. I think well, is the the differentiation that I would make there. I mean, and and I I don't I do not have a a problem with his performance at all. Um, I, I think. I, I have a problem with certain character motivations that happen towards the end, which I, I, I definitely want to talk about. But I got to say, as, as, as a performance, I, I kind of like this. Like, and I, I don't know, because I know like being a struggling screenwriter is different than being a struggling actor. But I, 
I like that he's not overly dramatic. I feel like that would be more like the struggling actor. Like if this was a struggling actor trying to crack in, I could see somebody maybe being bigger or more brash. But like, I don't know. Like I'm, I he, I don't know. Like I, I don't. He's not quite like a Charlie Kaufman, but like he's there's something more meek about him. It, it, despite that, he kind of he he's kind of like a a golden boy, right? Which of course was a movie he was famous for doing years before this. But like, he's got like an all American face about him, and yet he's not he's not overly confident, which I I kind of like for this part. I just, I just, I wanted to feel, I wanted to feel the heat. Now he does, I will counter with the, I do think he has a really good scene at the end where he brings, uh, what, it, I'm blanking on her name that he's writing Betty, the screenplay with. Betty, or Nancy Olsen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Nancy Olsen, uh, where he brings her back or, you know, she ends up showing up at the mansion and he shows her around it. And there, there's a sort of like spitefulness, like a, I'm going to hurt you to help you because I'm, I'm in a rut here. You know what I mean? I don't want to, to taint your innocence and goodness with this, you know, Faustian deal that I have made. Um, that, that moment is very good. There is a, I really, I do genuinely feel that he's not just out to hurt her, that he's out to hurt himself as well. That that's really good. But the rest of the performance is, this is in my mind, I guess, I guess maybe I'm being a little bit unfair. I think right from the outset when it begins with the voiceover and the and the style of the film, I'm I guess I'm expecting more of a noir performance. And I'm not talking about some hard-boiled, you know, Sam Spade kind of kind of role, but I I did expect something with a little more edge. I think the meekness that you talked about is is really underwhelming. Yeah, you know, it's funny I, and I, I mentioned this before, I, I, especially with movies I haven't seen, I really try not to to read too much before I watch it. And you and you sent me that article, and I was like, yeah, I'm like, I can't read it. And I'm glad I didn't because I didn't I didn't know some of the specifics, so that this article would have would have ruined it for me. Um, yeah, it would have. Yeah, and I apologize for that. I should have <laughs> no, checked no. with you that you watched it. Yet. <laughs> it's it, no big deal. But um, I didn't like now. Now hindsight being what it is. I some of the things I I like the few things I had read about it beforehand mentioned its noir like qualities. The cinematography intentionally wanted to be sort of feel like a noir. Is this a film noir? I I think so. I don't know. That's like and I yeah I I'm think it's gonna... supposed I think it's supposed to be. But it's what but and part of. I, 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 I'm, I'm genuinely asking that question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm no noir expert, but the ones that I, that I know that I cling to, there's more of a, I don't know, there's more of a secret. There's a crime or there's a detective or there's something, you know, purposefully being hidden or, you know, there's something more mischievous going on. And this is so, this is so much more psychological that I, I just didn't, the, the narration is probably the thing that most links like noir in my mind and yet yeah that's that's what i was going to say i think the opening scene very much sets it up to be a noir beginning with that that very uh striking killing that very striking image uh, which was amazing how they shot that with the mirror by the way that's a, yeah. a great great that was, trick that's really cool i'd love it i think it's it's it is it's honestly one of a, i think it's the most one of the most iconic shots in film history it's fucking great and the cinematography as well glad you mentioned that i love the the technique they sprinkled the the dust in front of the camera in front of the lens before to give it that that weird sort of 
I don't know even what the word is to give it a sort of funk. I yes. guess uh, not the yeah. best word, but um, um sorry. Yeah, really quick. I, d- I do think this is supposed. To, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say. Um, uh, we, uh, I wanted to just briefly mention we we talked. So what it did win at the Academy Awards, though, it did win uh, writing. It did win production design, which I think goes into the details of like of the house and what happened there. And it did win best score. It did lose cinematography to a a movie we've already covered, and b one of the, I mean, one of the, like how you would refer to a noir in the Third Man. Um, that is the on on record. That is the greatest noir of all time. And so it's like, it, it's it was so weird to like think that people thought this was a noir and and if they do still i mean they're not wrong but like like if i was to it's, watch it's this, an outlier for sure yeah and then i was to watch the third man immediately following and be like no 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 third man is a noir this is like well, it's just more of an interesting character study if anything else well, like i just and billy wilder i mean he a couple of years before, he would make the great, again, in the top five noirs of all time, he would make Double Indemnity. And so that's, like I said, I think I think some of my judgment might be amended with a second viewing, having my expectations realigned a little bit. Yeah. But uh, what's sticking with the beginning, uh, reading about the alternate opening and closing the bookends of this film in the morgue with the voiceovers of him talking to other corpses, fucking... A plus job losing that. Yeah, I, I mean, cause and cause I'll be honest, I, I didn't know that it was William Holden in the pool. Oh, you beginning. didn't. I. Th- it seemed like that's that's the other thing that's bugging me about this film. My expectations about it is that it doesn't really feel like a twist to me. I mean, I've everybody knows, even if they haven't seen it, that Sunset Boulevard. You know, his the narration is from beyond the grave. It's been referenced in like, fucking countless other things. A part of the, the the zeitgeist of of these types of classic films, but it just nothing about it felt like a twist. Even even having it in my subconscious, but not realizing it at the time, I was like, oh shit, yeah, that's him, and he's dead, and he's talking to us from beyond the grave. It just it. I I'm sure that back in the 50s that was like a big deal but yeah of course we have the hindsight of 70 years but it just didn't feel there wasn't enough oomph to that for me. Well and, and another interesting similarity to All About Eve is that All About Eve starts at a at, at an award ceremony over narration and then it cuts back it goes back in the past to be like and here's how we got here um which is interesting again just beyond the similarities of like the, the the show business aspects and 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 having you know really strong female leads there's also this like we're gonna start with some narration and then we're gonna go back in the past and then get to where we were yeah i just i i think that's the for me that's the second strike against this film i said i think it's a better movie with marlon brando in the lead i also think it's a better movie well, yes, good job for losing the bookends, but also I don't think we should have had that scene. It, well, you it know would make it would make the last third of the film so much more tense if we didn't have that and then flashback. Well, you know what would also make it more tense because I I do like the actual opening, uh, seeing Sunset Boulevard on the road, and then that kind of that wonder of the of it just kind of moving back, and then we come up, we see the cops, cops fly by, like. I really like the idea of of all the cops going to the mansion. I I think what what also maybe leads to the tension. It's gonna want. It's gonna make us wonder 
who gets shot at the end would be if we just don't see the body. Because obviously, n- now, it's it's William Holden. Sorry, folks. William Holden's dead in the pool. Um, but knowing that, like, Ma- Max has been lying, you know, and we don't know if that's going to come out in the end. And fucking um, Betty comes over. Like, and, and that's that's fucking terrifying for, for Norma to, to deal with when she's there. So it's like... Part of what could have been interesting is like, yes, there's a dead body in the pool, but we're not going to tell you who yet. We're going to go through this story and, and then and then then you'll figure out who it is. Um, but yeah, having it laid out in the open, it takes away the twist and it does become more about how we get there. Yeah, absolutely. I You know, the, the comparison that I was thinking of was uh, Moulin Rouge, where in Moulin Rouge, Ewan McGregor in the opening, he tells us, that Nicole Kidman is dead. So we, we know that going in. The thing is, is that that was, and again, it's got a little bit more of an advantage because it's a big, loud, colorful musical. And so it's got plenty more to distract you with, but you do ultimately get distracted. And even though you've been told at the beginning of the film that Satine is dead, it still comes as a massive mammoth shock in those final moments. Whereas like in Sunset Boulevard, I'm just waiting for the murder to happen because for me, the subject matter wasn't, wasn't it i i i love the ideas i love that they spat in the face of their own industry that they they made some really bold incredible decisions and it's a great looking film great sounding film the score up until the last couple of scenes is fucking fantastic that opening yeah. bit of score i was like hell yeah let's do oh, this yeah. i'm in yep that opening right score in. awesome but there's just not there's just not enough suspense. There's not, you know what I mean? There's almost not enough meat on the bones. I want to spend more time with Norma. I really want to go further into the past and really see her in her heyday so that I feel the weight and the loss of her. Kind of they hint at the fact that she aged out of these roles, which is a really big deal. We don't have time, I think, to get into it now, but that's something that Hollywood does really need to address, especially with its, with its actresses, its, its female performers. You you uh, you bringing that up mentioned. I want to mention now the uh, the article that you sent me from the the Guardian. Um, uh, there is a great line in it that I I wanted to bring up uh, because they talk about that. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote the whole paragraph. It says, "Sunset Boulevard seems strangely tailor made to skewer our contemporary culture. In some ways, Norma is like Judy Garland or Marilyn Monroe, a tattered but resilient icon of womanhood who fell victim to the studio system. We learn that she was infantilized by handlers and pumped full of barbiturates in her early days, then cast aside as she aged out of her nymph-like beauty. 21st century Hollywood, meanwhile, continues to weather fierce blowback for putting female actors not named Meryl Streep out to pasture around the age of 40. Um, which is an it's a really interesting phenomenon. Um, a, because I think it's in a way Meryl Streep can do no wrong. And, and that's just kind of the way that it is. Um, but the way in which actresses are sort of trying, the only way they can combat that are essentially what Norma does in the part of the film when she thinks that her film is going to get made and she's going through all of those, those treatments. It's like, you know, seeing Sandra Bullock and, and Jennifer Lopez in movies that they're doing now. I mean, Jennifer Lopez in Hustlers was was she she was fifty doing that. It's yeah. like, I, I I mean and and I I I'm trying to I want to say this as 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 I not I don't know most women don't look like that when they're fifty and and it's nothing against J Lo probably worked her ass off to to do it good for her but like I, I wonder if there's like a sense that she she had to do it or like I, I, and I don't want to talk about Hustlers that's not what I'm what I'm doing but this idea of like 
what it seems like actresses have to do if they're going to stay relevant in Hollywood. Right. Otherwise, you have what I, I think I think the times are a little better, obviously, than they were in, in the 40s and 50s. You, you have actresses now, huge, big name actresses 10, 20 years ago, Julianne Moore, for example, who used to be in some of the biggest films, you know, that came out in their day. Now she's doing and I'm not to say she always did a bit of independent film, but now she is almost exclusively independent film. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, it, it, it is. I mean one of the biggest things to talk about in this movie is just this I, this idea of not not just what it means to be a part of a bygone era and, and not catching up with the times uh, or or even refusing to catch up with the times as as she mentions a couple times in the movie like you know why so many words i could do it all with my eyes or you know all that but but also just what it is to be a woman in hollywood um because like there's a good two to three minute sequence in the film where we're just seeing all of the shit that she is believes that she has to do in order to do this part correctly. If she's going to make her comeback. Oh wait, did I, did I call it a comeback? Sorry. It's a return. Yeah. That's nice. Like nice. That was a good pause there too. Well done. Um, I th- I think that is the most interesting stuff in the movie is like you say, this is, this really is Norma's story and, I almost, I'm almost, I'm kind of greedy in a way. I almost, I wanted more time with her. And like I said, I especially wanted to see if we could get some, some more footage of her as, as a young star. She does play that one film, um, which came from her private collection, apparently, because Paramount didn't have a decent print of it, a film that she actually did do with uh, Eric von Stroheim. So there's a lot of, a lot of circular things happening in this film. I think um, that 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 is one of the it's it's one of the more brilliant parts of the movie is is specifically casting Gloria Swanson and Eric von Stroheim to be in the movie. It's and it seems like von Stroheim later in his career had a better better go of it as an actor than he did a director. It seems like the directing kind of dried up for him in the mid thirties. I think a lot of that is probably due to the the lack of success with greed and and that sort of battle over that. You know, how long was the original cut? Was it nine hours? Oh God, some something fucking crazy like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, I will, I, I will turn positive now. I do love Eric von Stroheim in this film. I don't, I don't know that he's my unsung hero because that might be the director of photography. I'm kind of leaning two different directions there, but I do, I really love his performance. I love the subtext of that character. That there's a this isn't just about uh, the Gloria Swanson character. This is kind of about him as well. He has become accustomed to a certain way of living as well. And so there's a sort of codependency there. The detail of him writing the fan mail, fucking perfect. Yeah, awesome don't, moment. That, yeah. Don't check the postmark. That's such a, that's a yeah. great. Oh, it's well, so and, good. And there was, but th- what's great about that. And it's, it's, I wouldn't call it a twist, but there's a great moment um, where, we we have that information now, right? We know that the fan mail is not genuine fan mail; that it's coming from Max. Um, but then we get all this stuff with uh, Gordon Cole, guy at Paramount who keeps calling. And you know, at one point I wrote that I go, "Is there a Gordon Cole? Is this guy real, or is this just uh, is this just Max continuing to to do this?" And then when when how much fucking- how much better would that have been? 
Well, no, but I see. I I like that it wasn't. I like that it instead. Paramount is calling. I love that Paramount is actually calling, but it's not for her. It's because they want to use the car, and but but she's already convinced herself. No, 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 nope. The stars, the zodiac, it all fucking aligned, which is just poppycock anyway. But like she is fucking gung ho. She is going to Paramount. Fucking open the gates for me. I'm making my return. And like to then to realize on, you know, for, for Max to realize that they were only calling for the car. I think why I like it that way is because you see that he's crushed too. And 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 it's because because if maybe if we don't have that moment, he's just the creepy guy in the corner, you know? But like when when he's like he's affected by the fact that they weren't actually wanting her. They wanted the car, um, which I, I think is a, a great little touch to have in the movie. Yeah. Though, again, I can't help. Why do I keep going negative on this episode? This is a movie that I should love. This has all of the, this ticks all the Ian boxes, but the detail of him being her first husband, it feels like just one thing too many. Like, I love that he's the director. He discovered her at 16. That's all great. Like, he has an investment in this woman. He, he, not only emotionally, maybe financially in his mind as well. That's why he's still there. That's why the fan mail. That's why the calls and, and such. But it's just, I don't know. It's just one thing too many in a film that I think blows its wad way too early. Especially detail-wise. Especially her performance where, you know... Her performance for me goes too over the top at the end because she starts crazy with the whole monkey funeral thing and then has really nowhere to go. She just has to maintain the level of crazy. Whereas if we don't, if we have that monkey funeral later, then maybe this woman is still saying we have that we can suspend our disbelief, give her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she was really fucked over. Or maybe, you know, un unlike what we get, whereas now she's just crazy. See, it's it's funny because I also... I, it took me a while at first to, to make my mind up on, on what's happening with her in the beginning part of the movie. And, and maybe this is obvious, but like, you know, I think it's crazy is one thing. But I think she's constantly performing. And, you know, to not just think... To, to not just think about constantly performing, but also think about in silent films. And, you know, we, we've seen a handful, but, like, everything had to be bigger because everything was told through the through, through your body language, right? So how you gestured something really helped sell the, the title cards that helped, that kind of told the story. And so watching her with the the eyes, and she, and she even mentions her eyes, you know, like, I could, I could do a whole thing with my eyes. Like... It's one thing to think she's crazy, but it's another thing to think that she's constantly performing. And that's, I think that's what kept hooking me in and, and why each new thing seemed interesting because like when something seemed to be going her way, it was, it was nice to see like when she first gets up to the, to the, the gate and uh, she sees, De sees Cecil B. DeMille and you know, he calls her young fellow, which of course, yes, if you do the research is something that Cecil B. DeMille actually called Gloria Swanson was, hey, nice young fella. Um, but like, there are moments where it feels like she's genuinely being a person. Um, maybe a, a slightly arrogant person, like when she's coming into the gates, doing you know, the first time at the, at the security check-in. But like, 
what I what I love of what I love about the actual end of the movie is she's coming down the staircase and she's she's making her speech and she sees the cameras is that this is somebody who who to for me has now actually become crazy and yet she's still performing and that's like I see it's so funny. I fucking loved her coming down the stairs. The shit with the hands was so like she was always posing. She was always gesturing. And it was like she was constantly being filmed. It's like the whole time she in case somebody sees her, she needed to be ready to show, look, I can still do it. I I thought it was mesmerizing. Well, I'll tell you what, I think I went too far and didn't leave myself I, I went to the scene I didn't leave myself any breathing room there I will meet you halfway <laughs> and change my adjective from crazy to disillusioned I think is sure. perhaps the, the better word there um uh so how how does the dead monkey never come back into play I yeah I know man you set up something like I said you you've set up something that bonkers that early and then it just kind of goes away let's have some fucking payoff I mean he has the line about her burying him like he's a firstborn son or something like that but I don't know I mean, it's I think it's I think it's Billy Wilder showing us because you know after this we would start to get into some less serious fare you know show that yeah I do I do have a funny side I just made one of the most intense noirs that would be for all time. Obviously, he didn't know that, but I can, you know, I know when to to release that pressure valve. Yeah, I mean, even just you know, even just knowing how she got it, I don't know. I just a fucking monkey in the movie. What is this? And there's a monkey Undertaker, with a with a what he says is a child sized coffin. Which, when you think about those three words together, that should rip your heart out of your chest. But instead you're kind of oddly bemused. Maybe you're laughing. Maybe you're going, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh, weird, weird dichotomy there. So you, in terms of unsung hero, are you, are you leaning towards Eric von Stroheim or are you going with, I think, I think I am. Because, you know, as much as I love the cinematography, it's deceptive cinematography. It, yeah. It's, you're, you're trying to be a noir and maybe you're not. Well, it, yeah, I mean, I think the cinematography is, is fine. I mean, you know, but it's, you know, I don't think it's anything. I mean, I think, uh, I, I think not just, not just the third man, but I think all about Eve's cinematography is, is what I would say is better than this one too. Um. Uh, you know it's funny. I'm gonna my unsung hero is is I'm gonna go with Cecil B. DeMille. Nice, I'm I can back that. That that scene, I mean, it really is pivotal, and I really like what he's what he's doing, and um, you know he's he's got a really tricky you know moment to like you know pay respect to somebody who did work for Paramount, who did help. You, you know, do so much for the company and, and maybe, maybe was, was a reason for why it was so successful in its early years, but also be like, I got nothing for this woman. The script was terrible. I, I think she's here because she thinks I'm going to do it. And like, I think the balance he plays of, of, you know, trying to be nice and placate her, but also get her off as quickly as possible. I think, I think it's balanced really well. Um, and I, I, you know, and again, I, I mean, we, we've admitted our unfamiliarity with Cecil B. DeMille. It was nice to, I, and it's funny because I, 
in the making of documentary I watched on this movie, they talked about his voice and yeah, that's, that's a hell of a voice. I really like the the quality of his voice. And I think in that little scene, there's so much going on and Oh my God, I love after we realize it's the car and the way he says, put, put that light back where it's supposed to be. And like, we know, okay, this is done. She's out of here. Yeah, no, it is. It is a masterful performance from somebody that, that isn't an actor. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the the shot um, of the the camera um, looking like where it, the the body in the pool is being shot from below, but it is being shot from above. Um, that that might be my favorite shot of of the movie. Well, I, that's definitely yeah, I definitely think so because the only other one that I was going to talk about is when uh, he's showing. Betty the house that that really heartbreaking moment that I mentioned earlier but I think that's that's got more to do with set decoration I think in my mind and production design which production design in this film is spectacular yeah it's great I love there's a there's a actually a line in the movie that sort of um gets to talk about it a little bit uh which is great he says something about uh he looked out his window and he saw the ghost of a tennis court which I think is just just a great line and, oh, and, the, and yeah it's that's masterful that tennis court has seen some some fucking better days. And the rats uh, in the swimming pool. Yeah. And then there's also on the more glamorous side, he talks about, you know, how, oh, no, Norma's here. Look around. There's hundreds of her because there are framed pictures of her taking up literally every surface space in that room. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it, it's. And again, I feel like this is such a deeper rabbit hole thing. And, and the movie and that article that you sent me um, really kind of spawned this. But, you know, what what does it mean to be to have so much success so early on and then to basically have nothing and to to not only not have any new any new projects or work or things to, to, to be proud of or to talk about. And all you're left with all that you're left with is just the glory days, the good old days. And, and like, that's like this idea of, of not going to see new movies, but instead having a theater in your home and all you watch are the things that you're in. It's just, I mean, clearly this woman cannot, will not forget the star that she was and not accept the fact that she no longer is one. Well, what I really wanted to talk to you about with that article, even though I, th- I think that is all very relevant and important as well, and that is the stuff that I agree with in that article. The flip side is, I think I think it's interesting the way that they phrase it, because in my mind, the way that social media works, and, and again, maybe I don't have a leg to stand on just because I don't participate in it very much, is that I think the sounds of people trying to stay famous are drowned out by the sound of people trying to get there which is the kind of the opposite of this film. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean I it it's it's I don't know, it's so weird because it's I I I uh recently on a on an episode of John Oliver, um they did this thing where for some re- have you heard of Cameo? Do you know what Cameo is? Yeah. So I I I'm unfamiliar to an extent, but basically it's like famous people or somewhat famous people you can basically rent their time and get them to send a message to somebody or have a conversation with them that lasts for you know a you know a very various length of time and they had Steve Gutenberg on uh the last week last week tonight yeah, with John yeah. Oliver yeah I, I saw that one and so and it's like 
I get that 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 with YouTube and TikTok and Instagram that it can be so much more about uh, people trying to to make a name for themselves, you know, become a YouTube star or you know an, an Instagram influencer, you know, whatever the fuck. But I also feel like that's an outlet for the for people who who aren't in the mainstream anymore. And I, I cameo may not be the best uh, example, but you know, I mean, how easy is it now for somebody who isn't making movies anymore because they're just not getting the right thing to just pop out their phone and now start? I'm not even sure what they're called, like an, an Instagram story. And one day, oh, I'm I'm filming myself doing this, and it is a I, I feel like it is a way to stay to stay relevant, and it is a way to not let that to not let that star burn out. Um, now, I, I agree with you that I think it I, I think. Uh, social media is more about um, people trying to to claw up and make a name for themselves. Unfortunately, though, it's also become an outlet for people who don't want that star to burn out and and to stay as relevant as possible. Yeah, that's and that's yeah, man. Oh shit, you're you're. This feels like uh, this feels like raging bull again with the the sort of back and forth we're having. A little less passionate, but <laughs> so there's some good counter arguing going on over here. Um, no, I get it. And and I think the word that I would use there to, to back that, that up, what you just said is, yeah, there's what's so heartbreaking about her character is the desperation. And there is a, a desperation in, in that element of social media and, and cameo and things like that. I mean, hopefully the money's going to a good cause, but maybe it's just stars trying to you know maintain the lifestyle that they have through any kind of income that they can get because they know that they can use the the stardom that they have yeah so there Which is, is a, i'm sorry that's a very cynical way to look at it but well i you know but it's it's a it's a point of view um so i the one thing one thing that i definitely want to mention um and, and it's you know i it's I think the thing that the moment of the movie that I had the, the most trouble with is so we're right towards the end and Norma has called Betty and basically said, Hey, do you wonder where he lives? Don't believe him if he says he's living with relatives or whatever. And basically he lives here with me, but he's heard the conversation and he tells Betty, why don't you come over? Here's the address. And she comes over, he invites her in and you know, I didn't expect him to basically say, I can't go back to, you know, my shitty life, basically, you know, you go, you go marry my friend, you have a good life and she's sad and clearly she wants to be with him. But then the next thing that he does is to go to his room and pack his original suitcase with his original shit because he's going to go take that shitty job in Dayton, Ohio. And then, and then that's what prompts Norma to shoot him. Now I'm, I'm looking for what you think, but why why does he tell off Betty if he's ultimately going to leave Norma? Is it that he doesn't want to be with either of them? like that This is the- this is the thing that I appreciate about William Holden's flat boring performance is there is a subtext <laughs> there and I don't know how much of it is him or how much was in the script or how much of it is Billy Wilder, you know what you I mean? Dick. But there is You dick. There, I know. There's no, but I am going to say something good here. There is a the a beautiful subtext of shame, real deep seated shame and self loathing, which I I love seeing actors do in films. I love that. I love a a certain nihilism in performances, 
as I mean, obviously, as you know, Taxi Driver is one of my favorite films of all time. There is that film is built on a foundation of nihilism. Yeah, and and I I do get that. I just I don't know. I don't know. I is that kind I, of a cop out for you? No, not no, not necessarily. I, I just I guess I guess we need something like that to motivate her shooting him. And obviously, if if this movie was done in the way that like I I might have suggested, where we know there's a body in the pool, but we don't know whose it is, okay, well then we don't. Who knows? It could be anybody at the end of it, which could be interesting. Um, but and I I can't even say that I guess I necessarily wanted him to be with Betty, even though there clearly was a nice you know burgeoning romance happening between the two of them. I guess it's the I don't know. And yeah, see, I, I, what I was about to say is that I don't know if I don't buy him saying, no, I don't want to be with you because he really does. Or if I don't buy him wanting him leaving, I, but like, but, but you mentioned shame and you mentioned like, like he, like he hasn't been, maybe there's just like that he hasn't been himself for such a long time that he's just going to go back home to maybe a sense of familiarity and just start over. But there was just a, yeah, he, he doesn't recognize himself anymore. Yeah, there's something slightly missing from that, and I, I'll be honest, I don't quite know what it is, but there's something that's, a, that's a little funny. unsatisfying. That's that's funny. You and I, we have this interesting pendulum that's happening. I feel like you like the first, maybe three quarters of this film, and I don't, and and uh, I like the last quarter, whereas you have some hesitation about it. Well, and it's tough too because it's I. I it's it's that few minutes because obviously when we get to the next day, like everything that Gloria Swanson does after like when she's upstairs and like, you know, had a hoppers up there and, and like she hears the cameras are there and, and fucking Max is like, yes, the cameras are ready for you. And, and she has to she has to get ready. It's just like that's all great, too. I just it's a little bit of the storytelling right there that I, I have some troubles with. Ultimately, it's not enough to hang me up, though. I, I get it. it. There, there's maybe an emotional beat or two that's missing. I can concede that. <laughs> Not that we're trading points here or anything like that, but uh, man, I was just, you know, like I, I said, I think I said it a few minutes ago. This checks all the boxes for me. Just so, why am I having this sort of bland reaction to it? I don't. I, I'm having trouble putting my finger on it. It just didn't move me in the ways that. I wanted it to move me. Well, that's, and that's fair. That's fair. And, and part of it too, you know, it sounds like not the biggest William Holden fan. And, uh, he's and boring as shit. Watch bridge <laughs> on the river. Kwai. He is the least memorable thing in that film. Oh, buddy. I got to Obviously I got to see Stalag 17. Cause that's the one he got the Oscar for. Maybe, maybe I'm missing something. It, it, it's, you know what? William Holden. It's, it's not, it's not you. It's me. And I and I I one of my thoughts, especially because I had just seen Born yesterday, is that I think he's, I think he's tremendously undervalued. But and I'm I'm not gonna say that he's, I'm not gonna say that he's like underrated or misunderstood. But I think you know I think he brought a real solidity to performances. And I think, I mean, in, in the few things that I've seen him in, he really he's playing the straight man to all the other outrageous characters. I mean. 
because I have not seen Bridge on the River quite, but in Born Yesterday and in Network, he's the most straight-laced of the people. I mean, think about the characters he's surrounded by in Network and the performances going on around him. He's not bad, but, like, you've got Peter Finch and Faye Dunaway and Ned Beatty fucking hitting them out of the park, you know? So it's like, again, it's like, what does the movie need? And I think he just needs to be the quote-unquote boring, boring guy. Well, I think uh, Network specifically, I think uh, Patty Chayefsky's dialogue does a little bit of the heavy lifting for him. Well, sure. that I mean, that's true. That's true. Um, the, the whole the, we're not we're not talking about network, but that scene where he's like, "I stopped measuring dicks in the second grade." Oh fuck me, running! That's a good line. <laughs> um. So I I I I I believe we've probably said all the things that we we need to say. Yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling good. Are you feeling good about this? I'm feeling good about this. So so yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question, my friend, and that question is. Should Sunset Boulevard be in the book? See, this is this is where uh, we could fall into an old pattern. I could say yes and fall into that trap of, well, I'm just saying yes because it's iconic and my heart really isn't in it and I feel like that I want to respect the history and the, the things that this film did, like spitting in the face. We didn't even tell that story. You know, it, it spat in the face of its oh, own industry. Louis right. B. Mayer afterwards said some really fucking terrible things about how he should go back to, to Germany, you know, the Holocaust missed him, blah, 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 some really hateful, nasty shit. It's come out now. Uh, Nancy Olson said that his response was just a very simple, go fuck yourself. I'm sure it had a bit more oomph than that, but I'm, man, I respect to Billy Wilder, wherever that magnificent son of a bitch is. It's an oldie buddy goodie. Oldie buddy goodie that old go Hell fuck yeah, yourself. I am I am so fucking pumped for the apartment next week, but I didn't answer the question. I am I'm not gonna fall into that old trap and say yes just because of its iconic status. I am gonna say no. Good for you. Good for you. I'm gonna stand my ground. I love it. Now now uh, what are you replacing it with? Well, I I initially went the artist. I can hear it. I can hear the boos already. Don't worry. I mean, I, uh, I'm I'm not booing you, but only because I'm doing the show with you right now. But in my exactly. mind, I'm booing yeah. you. There's probably several of you. There's a crowd. <laughs> it's starting to form. It's starting to form a mob. <laughs> uh, but the artist is already in the book. It is. And and the irony is not lost on me saying that because the director of that film, in his acceptance speech, simply said, "I'd like to thank three people: Billy Wilder." Billy Wilder and Billy Wilder. So irony is not lost on me. Um, I am going to say something that is very me. And you're probably going to go, ah, for fuck's sake. And that's okay. You're allowed to. I would replace it with the Coen brothers, Barton Fink. You know, what's really funny about you that. Could, you, could, you could say what you really feel. It's no, okay. No, no. You're not going to hurt my feelings. No, no, no. So the, the truth is I've only seen Barton Fink once a long time ago, and I can't say that I remember it very well. Um, the interesting thing that I, I, I came across the other day is that the Coen brothers only have two movies in the book, and one of them... That is horseshit. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, one of them I'm, I'm okay with. One of them I haven't seen, but it feels like it's not the right other movie to be in the book. So it's... Do you know what they are? It's uh, 
it's Big Lebowski and No Country nope. for Old Men, isn't it? Nope, you are wrong on both. No, no, No Country used to be in there. It's not now, though. All right. Oh, that's so, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm cheap. I haven't bought the new copy of the book because it's no. Fucking... But it, but No Country wasn't in the one before, though. It, it, I swear to God, it was in a previous one. It might have, it might have been. So the two movies that are in the books that are the Coen Brothers are Fargo and Raising Arizona. That has a massive cult following. It's not, uh, it's not a huge favorite of mine. And no, I will not be trading in my Coen Brothers fanboy card. I'm going to stand my ground on that as well. I understand it. I get the appeal. It is very, very funny. Not a personal favorite of mine. I would go, obviously, Barton Fink, Miller's Crossing, Inside the... I, fuck it, I would throw a lot more in there. There's not enough. I, I know you would. I know you would. So many of their films are so different. I personally feel, with the exception of maybe two, that they have gone out of their way to never repeat themselves. Sure. Yeah, or I mean, to, they to, definitely... To do, their, to do their best to not repeat themselves. They definitely are um, the. They have a, a very wide range of topics and themes and styles that they are definitely trying to bring to the screen. Yeah, from but what I remember of Barton Fink though, it, it is a period piece. It is about the industry. Um, I, I mean, obviously it gets it's very much different um, in terms of its tone, but I, I think that is an adequate. I mean, again, I I'm not gonna talk about the quality of the movie, but I think in terms of what it's what you're going for, I think that is an adequate replacement. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you, man. I was a little, I was a little nervous about that one. I'm sure, I'm sure I've got to turn my classic film nerd card in for saying that I would take Sunset Boulevard out, but I'm willing to, to face those consequences. Well, I, Hey, I'm excited because I have just spent a couple of weeks, um, uh, you know, specifically with All Quiet on the Western Front and Pinocchio saying no. And then even really thinking about the last two two or three months, I, I just have been on a no streak. I, you know, Peeping Tom, going back uh, a little bit further to um, with like with Breathless and, 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 and this with our decade run. Oh, well, Nashville, Nashville as well. This is kind yeah. of the, the comparison I wanted to make. I feel like this is my Nashville as it was to you. Like you, you get it right. You, you kind of like, I think if I remember right, you said that you there, you had an appreciation for the, at least the style and, and maybe the scope. I'm sorry. I don't mean to go putting words in your mouth. I feel like, I feel like there, it wasn't a hard no. You know what I mean? No, it, it wasn't a hard no. No. Um, it, it just, I think it was a bit, bit heavy handed at times, but, but I'm, but anyways, I'm excited because I absolutely think this should be in the book. I think this is uh, uh, a, yes, it is a classic, but I think it's a classic for a reason. Um, and maybe it's just the, the actor in me and, and the, the way in which it delves into Hollywood and, and, and the way that in a way, you know, Billy Wilder is trying to confront the business that he's in. Um, I think the performances are great. I like the screenplay. I like the direction. Few moments aside that are either confusing or lackluster. I, I think this is a movie that is well worth your time. Um, but hell. That's that's great. I, I feel like we haven't had, we've had plenty of splits, but we I think we've had the very, it's very rare that we've had a yes from you and a no from me. Yeah. I feel like there's only been a few of those. So those, those are nice when those happen. I, I love how <laughs> amicable this is. There's yeah, a well, there's a there's a respect across the Skype call. You respect my replacement, I respect your yes. There we go. There we go. 
Um, and, and hey, you know what? We respect what you think about Sunset Boulevard, whether you like it or don't. So please hit us up on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you think of Sunset Boulevard and Billy Wilder and, and keep those thoughts flowing as we uh, get ready to talk about The Apartment next week. Um, if you want to support the show or recommend a movie for us to talk about, you can support us on patreon.com slash 1001 by one. You can find us on Google, Apple, Stitcher, uh, uh, Spotify, great places like that where you can find podcasts. It's great. Um, and like we said, stick around. We're going from 1950 to 1960, sticking with the same director, switching up our cast, switching up our, our, our storyline and what we're going to talk about, uh, and, and talk about a great, like, I feel like, I feel like label list movie. Cause I don't know how you define the apartment. Um, and I can't wait to chat about it, but until then I am Adam and I am you, and we will see you next week. <laughs>